Hi folks, this is Rue. And Dave. And this is So Many Books. So Little Time. Today we're going to be starting the book Anne of Green Gables by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Cue the music. So yes, new book, new intro. Yes. We're trying this, as long as I don't stuff it up. No, I don't well, because Rue is going to be reading uh, this book, and we'll probably do that as we uh, switch books. You know, uh, we've decided to go light for our second book because the first book was so heavy. Mm. Although I tend to think that was rather light tone. I, I don't see uh, what everyone goes on about. I'm just staring at you right there. No, um, no. And... Then we'll be, after Anna Green Gables, we'll be going into Brave New World again. A light romp. So yes, um, we, the idea is that we're, we're using this one as sort of a palate cleanser, but also to explore other facets of the emotions and responses that books can actually bring out in us. Mm. Because, you know, they can make us think of really as a warning or they can serve as an inspiration. They can make us laugh. They can make us cry. All oh, these emotions. Um, yeah, they, so. they can make us angry. <laughs> now, yes, yes, they can. Yes, they can. So for two minutes. Yes. Uh, funny. So moving on from 1984. Now we're going to go throw back in time. Um, so this is the book that was initially written way back when. Anne of Green Gables was written by Lucy Maud Montgomery, publishes L.M. Montgomery, and this book was uh, published in 1908. Um, so that's it would have been written a bit earlier to that, but it was published in 1908 the first time. It is considered uh, children's a children's book or a children's novel. Um, however, the themes seem to... I, I don't know. If you're a person who doesn't read children's novels, this might not be... Hey, the original Grimm's fairy tales were for children, and exactly. those are very disturbing. Like, this is not the disturbing kind of book. This is a mostly happy and slice of life, I believe is the mm. term that we can use. Slice of life, but set in 1908, kind of, mm. so, so the beginning of, of the um, 20th century. Is uh, the lady a... Um... English or an American She's author? Canadian. Canadian. She's huh? Canadian. Um, and so it has a bit of that. I guess the, the idea is it's a bit wholesome. We like some wholesomeness once in a while, you know. It's... Well, and, and it kind of as a, a mirror to our last book, uh, this time Rue has a history with this book and I've never read it. Yeah, so we're going to flip it. We will, like, the books I choose will occasionally be young adult novels or children's novels just because they have... Um, there's a tone in there which can encourage hope and and positivity and sometimes it, i'm not okay i'm not a proponent of false positivity that is not my my jam not my jive but i do like it when once in a while when you're trying to take a break when you're using books as an escape tool to have something uplifting and encouraging um yes have books that are challenging as well you know have a run the gamut of the entire uh, literature uh, options but this is this is my kind of it's the peanut butter and, and jelly toast of my my um, brain, for my brain, so to speak. It's it's not lacking nutrition, but it's probably not something you'd want to constantly eat. Well, and just on that thing of children's and young adult books, I mean, 
young adult novels have we have experienced quite a boom in the last 10 to 15 years uh, because well a lot of them have actually been dystopian and those seem to be the ones that are really popular they're dystopian but they're uh, when you face uh, resilience in the face of dystopia <laughs> is a big theme and you know what there's there's a big thing like there's a lot of um, attitudes towards young adult novels depending on the source that can be rather dismissive and yeah. discouraging but the foundation of literature the very purpose of literature was to convey stories and share stories as um, and as, as an educational tool as a, that's where storytelling originates from and if young adult novels which are you know the stories that are there to encourage and to provide wisdom and insight are being disparaged what are you doing actually i've got a great um analogy for that i'm currently reading a book about how to write a great scene because mm. i have um literary aspirations myself mm -hmm. um and it, the, the book opens up kind of um the donna man uh, uh, like a um a tribe somewhere uh in africa or india that's uh the tribe is being um what's the word they're they're being harassed by a tiger and that's very dangerous for the tribe. But um, so, so basically there's this, uh, what every man, of the, well, what every person in the tribe knows is the tale of the tiger. Basically, it's a story that is told uh, to the tribe over and over again about the, uh, the boy who faced the tiger and lived. Mm. And basically, it's, it's so when, when they get into formation to go and hunt the tiger, that's from the story. And, when the main character of the story, uh, this <laughs> the story this uh, book is telling, um, mm. hope I'm not being too confusing. In the book I'm reading, where they're talking about this story within a story within a story, mm. um, the 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 uh, the young man of the tribe, who's the main character of the story, who's heard the story about the tiger, mm. he's uh, as it usually is in these stories, he's kind of the weakest. He's not a man yet, and Mm. Um, they, they, they kind of, you know, they, they, um, create kind of a half circle as the tribe and they start fencing the tiger in to try and force the tiger to go at one of them to try and get out. And then the person who the tiger goes at, they throw the spear and mm. the hopefully the tiger dies and the village is saved and that person becomes a hero. Often they become the next leader of the tribe, mm. uh, because there's, there's only two outcomes of the tale of the tiger. The hero lives or the hero dies. Well, yes. Um, so, but it's the idea that when the time comes, this, this young uh, man, when the time goes for him, and he throws the spear, and he kills the tiger, he's able to do that because through the story he's been told, he's lived that hundreds yeah. of times before. The, the purpose of stories is to give us hope, but kind of, yes, to, to allow us to enter the lives of other people and hopefully yeah. gain... Um, almost like, you know, downloading information from the movie The Matrix, the idea of accessing information that maybe when we approach uh, similar hardships in our own life, we can we can rely on things we've read before. It's, it's almost in a way in a safe setting of your mind to usually so safe setting of your mind to experience something that has not physically occurred necessarily mm. to you specifically, but you can you can access that information, access that experience. By and and that's why, so sorry to go maybe on no. a little bit of a negative, but that's why I always get so angry, but more disappointed whenever I come across someone who 
has the opinion where I don't like stories that aren't true, you know, that idea where yeah. it hasn't happened. So what's the point in it? Because, and I do have a hard, as is evident of me trying to relay that story I've just read, I have a hard time explaining to these people the, the importance why? of stories and why, yeah. even if it technically didn't happen, it's so important. And then, of course, the fallacy, well, this story you're watching that says based on a true story, it didn't happen that way. Yeah. They've, they've changed it to make it palatable as a story. Yeah, there's, there's. I think we forget that stories are have multiple purposes and multiple goals. So now on the note of stories, so this is, this is a story that is about, well, we're going to get to know the characters. It is set in a slightly countryside setting, mm -hmm. um, small town, small village. And we, I think we're going to encounter a lot of interesting reflections on what the attitudes and what the characters is the same way that you had. Um, so if you've read Jane Austen, she can be interesting to read until you realize she's writing it in a very sarcastic. Um, yeah. Once you showed me, um, Rue showed me a passage of Pride and Prejudice, which I have read and I did not like, but she kind of showed me it in the mindset of um, Austin really poking fun at the people she's writing about. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> it changes the book. So, so there are scenes and scenarios in these books, particularly this book, that where you have some slightly, um, I'm going to phrase it as old school, um, kind of very conservative, very old school kind of thinking that was was and still is something that happens. Um, but there are certain patterns of behavior, and I think we'll, we'll go through it and we'll, we'll get there, but it is not lauding. It's not laudable of this behavior. It's not actually... She, she's writing it almost to describe so you know the setting in which the characters are. And I, I think, you know, I most books I've read that take place in like a small English country town, for instance, like I've read Middlemarch or yeah. something like Jane Eyre or Wuthering Heights. Yeah. Um, the, those those location where the, the people know everybody and the, and the next town over is like a day or two. Yeah, the there's a, yeah, there's a lot of that. Everyone is in everyone's business. And that, that comes into play quite Be, a bit. Because in these stories, I think they're set there because the rest of the world really doesn't matter. Yeah. It, it's like a closed it's system. It's a very, very close. It's a very local mind, very insular. Um, one thing is also there is a Netflix series. It is loosely based on this book. Okay. The most modern incarnation of um, Anne of Green Gables is very, very... Very. Okay, so so it's um it's modern day. No, it is still set in that early okay s s turn of uh, turn of century kind of time, um. But there is um I believe the the phrasing is they are looking at the darker environment and setting in which the, just the the things that were challenges at that time and making it a little bit more socially relevant. So it, it's a bit more gritty, I believe, is the word. Okay. But it's not bad. Like you still have the, some people have difficulties with it. Some people enjoy it. I like it because it's an interesting interpretation. Okay. So yes. But now. Shall we begin? We shall commence. I should um, turn my Kindle Kindle back on. Well, so I, each of the chapters does actually have a title. Okay. So they're going to, we're going to have title chapters. Mm. Starting the book. Chapter one. Mrs. Rachel Lind is surprised. Mrs. Rachel Lynde lived just where the Avonlea main road dipped down into a little hollow, fringed with alders and ladies' eardrops, 
and traversed by a brook that had its source away back in the woods of the old Cuthbert place. It was reputed to be an intricate, headlong brook in its earlier course through those woods, with dark secrets of pool and cascade. But by the time it reached Lynn's Hollow, it was a quiet, well-constructed little stream, for not even a brook could run past Mrs. Rachel Lynn's door without due regard for decency and decorum. (laughs) (laughs) It probably was conscious that Mrs. Rachel was sitting at her window, keeping a sharp eye on everything that passed, from brooks and children up, and that if she noticed anything odd or out of place, she would never rest until she had ferreted out the whys and wherefores thereof. Is this uh, introducing the... uh... The the busybody matron of the town. Of the town, yes. Yes, she's an interesting character. She's definitely a character. <laughs> so There are plenty of people in Avonlea, and out of it, who can attend closely to their neighbor's business by dint of neglecting their own. But Mrs. Rachel Lynde was one of those capable creatures who can manage their own concerns and those of other folks into the bargain. She was a notable housewife. Her work was always done and well done. She ran the sewing circle, helped run the Sunday school, and was the strongest prop of the Church Aid Society and Foreign Missions Auxiliary. Yet, with all this, Mrs. Rachel found abundant time to sit for hours at her kitchen window, knitting cotton warp quilts. She had knitted 16 of them, as Avonlea housekeepers were wont to tell in awed voices and keeping a sharp eye on the main road that crossed the hollow and wound up the steep red hill beyond. Since Avonlea occupied a little triangular peninsula jutting out into the Gulf of St. Lawrence with water on two sides of it, anybody who went out of it or into it had to pass over that hill road, and so run the unseen gauntlet of Mrs. Rachel's all-seeing eye. She was sitting there one afternoon in early June. The sun was coming in at the window, warm and bright. The orchard on the slope below the house was in a bridal blush of pinky-white bloom, hummed over by a myriad of bees. Thomas Lind, a meek little man whom Avonlea people referred to as Rachel Lind's husband. (laughs) 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 You you really get a flavour of of her really well well and i the thing that's just running through my mind is even today sadly that can be used as an insult that's kind of well they weren't necessarily using it as an insult i don't think i think it's more she is that dumbed full of a personality that and he's so meek that it's just like okay that's her husband that's not it's not that she's his wife that's her husband (laughs) rachel lynn's husband was sowing his late turnip seed on the hill field beyond the barn and matthew cuthbert ought to have been sowing his on the big red brook field away over by green gables mrs rachel knew that he ought because she had heard him tell peter morrison the evening before in william j blair's store over at carmody that he meant to sow his turnip seed the next afternoon Peter had asked him, of course, for Matthew Cuthbert had never been known to volunteer information about anything in his whole life. I'm, I'm already getting the, um, and I, I don't want to be insulting when I say this, but I guess it's inevitable, but that kind of 
small town um, atmosphere where everything moves so slowly that the only way to pass time is kind of to be up yeah. in everybody's business. Yeah, and that's and Rachel Lynn kind of really sees herself as that. That's her role. That's what she does. That's how she works. <clears throat> and everyone else always, you know, everyone's always asking questions because everyone's curious and bored and whatever. Well, not bored because they're busy. And, but, and I guess there's always like, you know, well, if we want to know about something, we go to her. Yeah. Because she's going to know about everything. Mm, there is that. And yet... Here was Matthew Cuthbert at half past three on the afternoon of a busy day, placidly driving over the hollow and up the hill. Moreover, he wore a white collar and his best suit of clothes, which was plain proof that he was going out of Avonlea, and he had the buggy and the sorrel mare, which betokened that he was going a considerable distance. Now, where was Matthew Cuthbert going, and why was he going there? Had it been any other man in Avonlea, Mrs. Rachel, deftly putting this and that together, might have given a pretty good guess as to both questions. But Matthew so rarely went from home that it must be something pressing and unusual which was taking him. He was the shyest man alive and hated to have to go among strangers or to any place where he might have to talk. <laughs> I, I can relate. <laughs> Mega introvert. <laughs> Matthew dressed up with a white collar and driving in a buggy was something that didn't happen often. Mrs. Rachel, ponder as she might, could make nothing of it, and her afternoon's enjoyment was spoiled. <laughs> I, I can't figure this out, damn <laughs> Yeah. I'll just step over to Green Gables after tea and find out from Marilla where he's gone and why, the worthy woman finally concluded. He doesn't generally go to town this time of year, and he never visits. If he'd run out of turnip seed, he wouldn't dress up and take the buggy to go for more. He wasn't driving fast enough to be going for a doctor. Yet something must have happened since last night to start him off. I'm clean puzzled, that's what, and I won't know a minute's peace of mind or conscience until I know what has taken Matthew Cuthbert out of Avonlea today. Accordingly, after tea... Mrs. Rachel set out. She had not far to go. The big, rambling, orchid-embowered house where the Cuthberts lived was a scant quarter of a mile up the road from Lynn's Hollow. To be sure, the long lane made it a good deal further. Matthew Cuthbert's father, as shy and as silent as his son after him, had got as far away as he possibly could from his fellow men, without actually retreating into the woods when he founded his homestead. Green Gables was built at the furthest edge of his cleared land, and there it was to this day, barely visible from the main road along which all the other Avonlea houses were so sociably situated. Actually, here's a note. I think I've never really been able to visualize Avonlea, but now it's making sense reading it out loud. Like it, The information goes in when you don't read it out loud, but sometimes it goes out. It's oh. better. And I didn't realize the layout was all the houses were set mostly on the road and then their their um, uh, farms and, and land was further back. Okay. Are you... Um, so this is something for me. When I read a book, um, I tend to mostly skim everything that's not dialogue and then center in on the conversations no, between people or in their own head yeah no I, i'll do, i'll read the descriptions but it's sometimes it do, i think it might, it might have been just a while since i've read it mm. but i don't think i've ever sat down and gone hmm, i wonder what that would look like i never it never caught me as important 
enough to worry about it. But it's interesting. So it actually is significant because it's an indicator that this family has a tendency not to be as, uh, like they're involved in the community, but they're not necessarily as involved in the community as, say, Rachel Lind. Um, mm, well, yeah, they, they, they want to keep their distance. They value their privacy, but they have a little bit of, they're a little bit um, out of step with the rest of the society. They're up on the hill. Yeah. Oh, and, you know, it's funny, uh, just sometimes the, uh, the choice of words, because uh, talking about a brook, yeah. Um, so now, now I'm I'm generally thinking I'm hearing the running water, but I'm also seeing like this the small stone um, fences alongside the road. You know. Yeah. Well, it's interesting also that that brook, the fact that it has, okay, where it is at the old Cuthbert place, it has dark secrets of pool and cascade, but by the time it's reached that more the closer to the main road area, it's it's a calmer, more polite, more. Well, uh, Mrs. Rachel Lynn would not appreciate no, no, a, uh, a bothered brook. No, no. But that's that's the idea. Like it's it 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 almost sounds. I haven't reflected on this. It sounds like a, an an analogy of the the way the family differs from the rest of the mm. the society that is around them. So they are actually a more. There's more depth to them. There's more intrigue. And also, um, a brook usually is an offshoot of a river. So. The yeah. idea that it's um, the tumultuous water, like the, the, the rapids, the, the water moving very violently and fast, that's happening away. And then when it finally comes here, it's... It's it, a little bit more curtailed. It's still still different. It's still moving a lot. and then But then you go back right to the town and it's quite... Yep. It's very polite. Right in front of Mrs. Mrs. Rachel, Rachel Lynn. Lynn. <laughs> it cannot be anything but polite. Now... <clears throat> Mrs. Rachel Lind did not call living in such a place living at all. It's just staying. That's what. <laughs> she said. She said. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, uh, especially because we spent so much of the last book talking about just these people are merely surviving. <laughs> I was like. Mm -hmm. So um, it's just staying, that's what, she said as she stepped along the deep, rutted, grassy lane bordered with wild rose bushes. It's no wonder Matthew and Marilla are both a little odd, living back there by themselves. Trees aren't much company, though. <laughs> Dear knows if they were, there'd be enough of them. I'd rather look at people. To be sure, they seem contented enough, but then I suppose they're used to it. A body can get used to anything, even to being hanged, as the Irishman said. Do you think rather is a typo or that's how they used to spell rather? I, it's a good debate. I have no idea. I'm going to do a little. Rather, it's a non-standard spelling of the word. That's a dialectical speech. Mm. So it is dialect. Rather. Okay. Rather. 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 Actually, you know, that would be it. The Canadians would be rather. It makes sense. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, Canadians. And this starts uh, our lambasting of Canadians for the whole oh, of the story. We're not going to lambast the Canadians. This is PEI folk, and they're a little bit different. And they've got a bit more of a Scottish twang to their speech, which I am not trying to emulate deliberately ever. So <clears throat> with this, Mrs. Rachel stepped out of the lane into the backyard of Green Gables. Very green and neat and precise was that yard, set about on one side with great patriarchal willows, and on the other with prim Lombardies. Not a stray stick nor stone was to be seen, for Mrs. Rachel would have seen it if there had been. 
Privately, she was of the opinion that Marilla Cuthbert swept that yard over as often as she swept her house. One could have eaten a meal off the ground without overbrimming the proverbial peck of dirt. Mrs. Rachel rapped smartly at the kitchen door and stepped in when bidden to do so. The kitchen at Green Gables was a cheerful apartment, or would have been cheerful it had, if it had not been so painfully clean as to give it something of the appearance of an unused parlour. Its windows looked east and west. Through the west one looking out in the backyard came a flood of mellow June sunlight. But the east one, whence you got a glimpse of the bloom-white cherry trees in the left orchard and nodding slender birches down in the hollow by the brook, was greened over by a tangle of vines. Here sat Marilla Cuthbert, when she sat at all, always slightly distrustful of sunshine, which seemed to her too dancing and irresponsible a thing for the world, which was meant to be taken seriously. And here she sat now, knitting, and at the table behind her was laid for supper. You know what? I, I, I'm already a fan of this woman's writing just because I love um, any time an author can describe someone with like a very esoteric uh, observation that you haven't heard before. But like that, you know, person who's distrustful of sunshine, it's like, oh, I know exactly <laughs> <laughs> like she's she, she's like life is meant to be serious i don't get it <laughs> this is too, it's too happy very nice turn of phrase like e even that opening bit of the chapter when she talked about how the the brook uh needed to be uh demure and um orderly when it passed by mrs uh lynn's house so now yeah. it was like right then i i kind of chuckled because i'm like oh i know exactly who this woman is yes so so far yeah i i am really appreciating the um the writing. Mm -hmm. Mrs. Rachel, before she had fairly closed the door, had taken a mental note of everything <laughs> that was on that table. <laughs> oh, yeah. I imagine going to visit with someone is just like reconnaissance, isn't it? Essentially. <laughs> there were three plates laid so that Marilla must be expecting someone home with Matthew to tea. But the dishes were the everyday dishes, and there was only crab apple preserves and one kind of cake, so the expected company could not be any particular company. Yet, what of Matthew's white collar and the sorrel mare? Mrs. Rachel was getting fairly dizzy with this unusual mystery about quiet, unmysterious green gables. Good evening, Rachel, Marilla said briskly. This is a real fine evening, isn't it? Won't you sit down? How are all your folks? Something that, for lack of any other name, might be called friendship, existed and always had between Marilla Cuthbert and Mrs. Rachel, in spite of, or perhaps because of, their dissimilarity. Marilla was a tall, thin woman, with angles and without curves. Her dark hair showed up some grey streaks, and was always twisted up in a hard little knot behind with two wire hairpins stuck aggressively through it. She looked like a woman of narrow experience and rigid conscience, which she was, but there was a saving something about her mouth, which, if it had ever so slightly developed, might have been considered indicative of a sense of humour. <laughs> we're all pretty well, said Mrs. Rachel. I was afraid you weren't, though, when I saw Matthew starting off today. I thought maybe he was going to the doctor's. Marilla's lips twitched understandingly. <laughs> She'd expected, she had expected Mrs. Rachel up, she had known that the sight of Matthew jaunting off so unaccountably would be too much for her neighbor's curiosity. 
no, I am quite well, although I had a bad headache yesterday, she said. Matthew went to Bright River. We're getting a little boy from an orphan asylum in Nova Scotia, and he's coming on the train tonight. If Marilla had said that Matthew had gone to Bright River to meet a kangaroo from Australia, Mrs. Rachel could not have been more astonished. She was actually stricken dumb for five seconds. It was unsupposable that Marilla was making fun of her, but Mrs. Rachel was almost forced to suppose it. Are you in earnest, Marilla? she demanded, when her voice returned to her. Yes, of course, said Marilla, as if getting boys from orphan asylums in Nova Scotia was a part of the usual spring work on any well-regulated Avonlea farm, instead of being an unheard-of innovation. <laughs> well, you know, they cost less than plow, well, oxen, and... <laughs> wait for it, there's reasoning coming here. Because they're just going, wait, what? Who does this? Mrs. Rachel felt that she had received a severe mental jolt. She thought in exclamation points. <laughs> A boy? Marilla and Matthew Cuthbert, of all people, adopting a boy? From an orphan asylum? Well, the world was certainly turning upside down. She would be surprised at nothing after this. Nothing! <laughs> what on earth put such a notion in your head? She demanded, she demanded disapprovingly. This had been done without her advice. <laughs> yes. A lady... <laughs> Oh dear. This had been done without her advice being asked and must, perforce, be disapproved. Well, we've been thinking about it for some time. All winter, in fact, returned Marilla. Mrs. Alexander Spencer was up here one day before Christmas and she said she was going to get a little girl from the asylum over in Hopetown in the spring. Her cousin lives there and Mrs. Spencer has visited here and knows all about it. So Matthew and I have talked it over off and on ever since. We thought we'd get a boy. Matthew is getting up in years, you know. He's 60 and he isn't so spry as he once was. His heart troubles him a good deal. And you know how desperate hard it's got to be to get hard help. There's never anybody to be had but those... Okay, warning, some racial... There's never anybody to be had but those stupid, half-grown little French boys. And as soon as you do get one broken to your ways and taught something, he's up and off to the lobster canneries or the States. But, I mean, come on, it is the French. It's the <laughs> it was the time. It was the attitude. And this is, well, it's... she said they're going to Nova Scotia. So, my Canadian geography is almost non-existent, but, like, the um, Nova Scotia is... Is that, uh, is that next to Quebec? Because um, I know that's the French province. Let me, let me go and find a map. This is probably like, pausing to get a map from the, the Canada, of the Canada. The Canada, yes, you heard me. So if, if she's traveling, sorry, if Matthew's traveling to Nova Scotia, maybe they live outside Nova No, because Nova no, Scotia no, no, is live... one of the states, Okay, isn't so it? here you go. So Prince Edward Island is there on the... On the um, so they're on an island, okay. Yeah, Prince Edward Island is. Um, you're gonna find where is it? The peninsula of there's Avonlea is a thing. Avonlea ah. um, should exist. So it's on, well, it's, not Avonlea, Avonlea, but it's on the east of the country. Yeah, um, it's on the east. It's a little island. There, it's a little boop of an island. Okay. So zooming out for Canada-wise, it's one of the small. It's the smallest little province. Okay. Then Nova Scotia is just below it. It's the mainland below it. Okay. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, yeah. And where's Quebec? 
Quebec is um, that bit there. Ah. Although, I mean, that's, again, my ignorance, because uh, from my understanding, like, most of Canada is bilingual between English and French. Yeah, that particular section. Also, I mean, you've got another island there, Saint-Pierre and Miquelon. So yeah, that's definitely, mm. yeah. Um, yeah, it is bilingual. Quebec is, is more more strict from everything. But, um, yeah, so New Prince Edward Island is very small. And... <laughs> For some reason, they don't like French boys. Well, it, I think it's it's a it's a trope. So it's it's a. Um... And also, she did say, well, you know, even if you do train up, they flee to the U.S. to get better jobs. Yeah. So well, they end up working in the canneries. So, so by the time they're you're used to them uh, mm -hmm. doing, they're used to it, and you're used to it. It's yeah. So the 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 labor system doesn't work well when specifically with hired help. It wouldn't work for say a, a homestead or a farm. It mm. doesn't. There's no longevity. Yeah. And also, there's no point because what what's the long term reward? I mean, we're talking into and we're going into more of the things like what's the reward for them to stay on that long if there's mm. no yeah. lifelong outcome? Anyway, so. at first Matthew suggested getting a homeboy, but I said no flat to that. They may be all right, and I'm not saying they're not, but no London Street Arabs for me. I said, get me a native born at least. There'll be a risk no matter who we get, but I'll feel easier in my mind and sleep sounder at nights if we get a born Canadian. So I'm suspecting, I don't know, we could have to look it up, homeboy would be someone that is bought from overseas. Hmm. So from the home office. Yeah. Gonna... What, what was it there? Uh, London, London Street Arab. Yeah, I think it's people... So that would be maybe someone from the Middle East brought to England, but then like was forced to live on the street or... Okay, I'm double checking. Street Arab, what is it? Homeless boy. Okay. Uh, they were called street Arabs, but it's not, they're not actually, okay. it's, it's a homeless child. Um, urchin. And, and I guess the idea with London, like there'd be people from all over the world there. So So the reason that you used to call them street Arabs, this is going to be a lot of this looking up things because they are not phrases that we're used to. Uh, a street Arab, the Arabs is referring to the nomadic nature of many of the Arabian tribes. Mm-hmm. So the idea of a street Arab is someone that is homeless, no pillar, no post. So it's mm -hmm. very, you know, like. Right. So so it's it's less a racial thing. It's just, no, you, we can't well, trust a boy like that. It's using a racial trope. It's oh, using yeah, yeah, a racial but, thing but, to, to stereotype to. Um, yes. Yeah, so there's racism in it, in the phrase itself. But what they mean is someone who is homeless or from the streets in London. Yep. Yeah. And yeah. So the, and they're not, so they're not local born. They're not Canadian. Mm. And that, that immediately is a thing. So. Well, as you were reading that whole spiel in my head, I was thinking this attitude isn't too far removed from modern times I've heard from many no, people. No, there's a lot of attitudes like that, and we get this constantly. And I mean, let's not even go into that right now, but it's, there's a lot of things. And we're going we're going to encounter this concept, mm. um, even someone, you know, okay, they're local born, but we're about to continue here. It's... Mm. Um, well, so, and then that's, um, I wouldn't say it's a danger, but it's just something you have to be prepared about when you read older, well, no, even even modern books, because you are stepping into a different time, a different place. And they're trying to depict that time yes. and place. So it's it's quite a challenge. So, so there's always, I mean, I think there's always incredible value in um, judging what you read by modern standards, but... It's also very good to keep in mind 
yeah, the what is. And I think the idea is you don't condemn uh, the work for something that doesn't pass modern muster. Yeah, you can condemn the book in the sense of if it's not something that is constructive or feels like, um, I mean, this one is commenting on how this isn't actually right. Yeah, yeah. In a sense, you're getting an idea that these are people in their small town with their small town prejudices. Quite old. Yeah. So very isolated, very, very insular in their thinking, very isolated, mm -hmm. very... Mm. And the author doesn't shy away from the fact that those are these attitudes that yeah. exist. We have to see what they do with these attitudes as we progress in the book. I mm. think that's the important part of it. Uh, ba -da -ba -da. So in the end. So we've got... So obviously they're going to sleep sounder at night if it's not a London Street urchin, apparently. Like, mm. um, so in the end, we decided to ask Mrs. Spencer to pick us out one when she went over to get her little girl. We heard last week she was going, so we sent her word by Richard Spencer's folk at Carmody to bring us a smart, likely boy of about 10 or 11. We thought that would be the best age old enough to be of some use in doing chores right off and young enough to be trained up proper. We mean to give him a good home and a schooling. We had a telegram from Mrs. Alexander Spencer today. The mailman brought it from the station, saying that they were coming on the 5.30 train tonight. So Matthew went to Bright River to meet him. Mrs. Spencer will drop him off there. Of course, she goes on to White Sand Station herself. Mrs. Rachel prided herself on always speaking her mind. And she proceeded to speak it now, having adjusted her mental attitude to this amazing piece of news. Well, Marilla, I'll tell you plain that I think you're doing a mighty foolish thing. A risky thing, that's what. You don't know what you're getting. You're bringing a strange child into your house and home that you don't know a single thing about him, nor what his disposition is like, nor what sort of parents he had, nor how he's likely to turn out. Why, it was only last week I read in a paper how a man and his wife, west of the island, took a boy out of an orphan asylum, and he set fire to the house at night. He set it on purpose, Marilla, and nearly burnt them to a crisp in their beds. And I know another case where an adopted boy used to suck the eggs. They couldn't break him of it. If you had asked my advice in the matter, which you didn't do, Marilla, I'd have said, for mercy's sake, not to think of such a thing, that's what. See, see, it's it's not so much that they're adopting a strange orphan boy. It's that they didn't, didn't. ask her first. Yes. <laughs> see, had they consulted with her, it could have been a completely different matter. This Job's comforting seemed neither to offend nor alarm Marilla. She knitted steadily on. I don't deny there's something in what you say, Rachel. I've had some qualms myself. But Matthew was terrible set on it. I could see that, so I gave in. It's so seldom... Matthew sets his mind on anything, that when he does, I always feel it is my duty to give in. And as for the risk, there's risks in pretty near everything a body does in this world. There's risks in people's having children of their own. If it comes to that, they don't always turn out well. And then Nova Scotia is always close to the island. It isn't as if we're getting him from England or the States. He can't be much different from ourselves. See, I kind of like her attitude. I mean, she's still very insular and isolated and things, mm -hmm. but she's like, she's, she's taking into account cultural. And, and I also like how she, we, we've gotten very little about Matthew aside from that he's very insular. And very shy. And... So he, she's like, he, he hardly ever wants to do anything. So anytime he does, I'm like, no, go. Yes, <laughs> I, I should support him. Yes. And that's, and I mean, that gives us also an indication of her as a person that she's, she recognizes that and mm. is 
compassionate enough to and and, and like there's almost a no, it feels like the right. It's my duty. It's my the right thing to do. She's very duty. And how she seems to have expected uh, Mrs. Lynn. Well, this whole conversation, how this was going to go. Yeah, she's prepared. <laughs> so, well, I hope it will turn out all right," said Mrs. Rachel in a tone that plainly indicated her painful doubts. <laughs> Only don't say I didn't warn you. If he burns Green Gables down or puts strychnine in the well, I've heard of a case over in New Brunswick where an orphan asylum child did that. And the whole family died in fearful agonies. Only it was a girl in that instance. Well, we're not getting a girl, said Marilla, as if poisoning wells were a purely feminine accomplishment and not to be dreaded in the case of a boy. I'd never dream of taking a girl to bring up. I wonder at Mrs. Alexander Spencer for doing so. But there, she wouldn't shrink from adopting a whole orphan asylum if she took it to her head. Mrs. Rachel would have liked to stay until Matthew came home with his imported orphan, but reflecting that it would be a good two hours at least before his arrival, she concluded to go up the road to Robert Bell's and tell the news. <laughs> of course she would. It would certainly make a sensation second to none, and Mrs. Rachel dearly loved to make a sensation. <sighs> so she took herself away, somewhat to Marilla's relief, for the latter felt her doubts and fears reviving under the influence of Mrs. Rachel's pessimism. Well, of all things that ever were or will be, ejaculated Mrs. Rachel when she was safely out in the lane. It does really seem as if I must be dreaming. Well, I'm sorry for that poor young one and no mistake. Matthew and Marilla don't know anything about children, and they'll expect him to be wiser and steadier than his own grandfather, if so be as he ever had a grandfather, which is doubtful. It seems uncanny to think of a child at Green Gables somehow. There's never been one there, for Matthew and Marilla were grown up when their new house was built, if they ever were children, which is hard to believe when one looks at them. I wouldn't be in that orphan's shoes for anything. My, but I pity him, that's what. So said Mrs. Rachel to the wild rose bushes out of the fullness of her heart. But if she could have seen the child who was waiting patiently at the Bright River station at that very moment, her pity would have been still deeper and more profound. So she's a, like, you can tell she is Miss, okay, Rachel Lind mm. is a fairly intense character, but she feels deeply. Mm. And uh, as, I, as I've heard from so many uh, older women in my life, I speak my mind, no matter what <laughs> yeah. it is. And, and you, sadly, usually that's followed up with, and if people don't like them, that the, like it, then that's on them. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, it's not the best. And I'm like, I appreciate you're honest, but there is this thing called tact. Yes, tact is not, okay. We can pretty much go with tact not being Rachel Lynn's strongest feature. Caring, probably yes. She cares very deeply, but not tact. Hmm. And Marilla's very... I, I don't get a mean-spiritedness No, she's her. not mean. And you can tell that. She's not a mean person. She just... She's a busybody. She's Yeah, she's a busybody. She's, she speaks when she really sometimes shouldn't. And she takes great pride in being kind of the, the hub of information in the town. Yeah. Or, yeah, to, to, to cause kind of a change. Um, so we've got that an interesting layout of we now know roughly where the town is. We know that there are prejudice and biases. We know that Marilla definitely does not want a girl. And because we know that the titular character of this story is a girl. Mm. Well, yeah. I'm assuming that the, the young girl that the other woman is adopting is Anne. Yeah. So Marilla is, yeah. Uh, yeah. So Marilla and Matthew, they've 
The, they're getting a boy. They they think they're getting a boy. Oh, they think they're getting a boy. They think okay. they're getting. There's a reason it's called. Spoiler. I'm sorry. The title is called Anne of Green Gables. I see. I was actually thinking in my head, and what I assumed was maybe this book spanned a larger time, and the girl would eventually move from um, Mrs. Spencer's and blah, blah, blah. well, well, they'd grow up and they'd get together and take over Green Gables, and then it was a story about her, or maybe they had a daughter who was Anne. You know, no, that. this is this this gets interesting. This yeah. whole thing gets very interesting because I've I've read plenty of you know uh, books where. It, it spans great amount of yeah, time, is... and, and you get you like start with a family, and then by the end of the book, you're dealing with like the great ranch. Heck, I I read War and Peace last year. You okay, know, that, I, I think that... War and Peace has given you a slightly different perspective to how that... time will flow in this book. It's not that like that. It's not that kind of book. But, but that's not the only one. A lot of them do that. Yeah, they do yeah. do that. Well, this one, remember, it's a children's book. Giving that kind of time, that that's that would you probably. Know... A so, bit much. And speaking of young adult books, that was actually one thing as a teenager, which I always loved about the Zanth stories by Pierce Anthony. Was, the, sorry, we're just going to put it a little aside. There's a reason we're not covering Zanth books. No, no. But we're um, not going to mention it, but there's a reason. Returning to Pierce Anthony as, adult, as an adult is uh, a little cringy. Super cringy, yes, yes. Um, but uh, yeah, I loved how, you know, as the books went on, you know, characters would be, make families and then a few books later you'd that their their children would have grown up. And, yeah, the you know. descendants. The fact that you keep having the, the forward going kind of yeah thing. This is they will, like if you go through the entire series later on. Um, right, because this is a this is a long chain of books, isn't it? Yeah, it's a long chain of books. The latter, like the later books, didn't get as much um, popularity as the earlier books. Okay, um, but the uh, is it because some people think she lost her way? No, the writing is consistent. Okay. The character, I think it's it's. I think people didn't want so bad things happen to the main character as she gets older, and good things happen. It's just very life much happens. Life. It's very yeah. much a reflection on life, and I think that the way she copes with these moments of distress is um, why people uh, people some people most people still continue the entire series and really okay. love it. But then there's a fraction that found it very difficult to to see how um the character had to process and cope with and the, it even attract like it addresses things like mental health uh de well, death in the family obviously but mental health issues um illness frailty um it, it's quite a good thorough um gamut of the challenges that life brings slice of life is an appropriate um it is, descriptor it is the 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 descriptor i can think of it is slice of life. It is, um, you will find that Ellen Montgomery, from memory, she was, I think, the wife of a, a Presbyterian pre uh, okay. minister. And so she does have a hint of, um, she does a hint of like the application of Christian mm -hmm. doctrine, but literally the application in the sense that uh, the constructive, positive, make a difference in society kind of mm. approach. Uh, and to be charitable, be kind, and and the the more the positive aspects, um, instead of the moralizing and punishment that well, the moralizing and punishment. How much of that is actual teachings, and how much of that is people um, dogma, like church based yeah. dogma? Is a whole. She actually, I mean, she confronts it straight away. She's confronting um, these attitudes that within a very small minded small narrow insular area 
the fact that someone would go and do something different. Yeah, that that kind of is uh, the the kickoff of the whole book, isn't it? It does. Yeah, and and I think that sets the tone. It's like this is this is going to be a challenging situation, a community being challenged by something different. And I I must say, um, I guess I had a, some fears that maybe with this being more uh, a book written for younger readers, more slice of life, more leisurely, that maybe. Um, there wouldn't be as much to discuss or as much enjoyment to be mm. had. But I, as you can probably tell by how often I was laughing during yeah. the reading, I thoroughly enjoyed myself. I, I, yeah. I think the tone's completely different and I, I'm, I'm enjoying the way the characters are described. And They, and... they come off the pages. That's, that's the thing. Like she does, uh, okay, Mrs. Montgomery, Ellen Montgomery is beautiful at bringing characters to life and i think that's what mark twain uh, commented on this and that that she is like the ep epitome of uh, the main character is uh, uh, the epitome of just a living breathing literary character that you could you could Im imagine them existing and growing up next to you like you you can feel that person existing I, but she's fictional i think that's probably because Okay, I, I, I haven't spent too long um, analyzing my own sense of humor and what makes me laugh, but I think when I read, because it happens a lot when I read, hmm. um, I, I think I laugh when I recognize humanity in the characters. And when they say or do something that makes me laugh, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, I know that. I know that, but yeah, she manages to create, and I mean, we'll, we'll probably get more and more of this. The more characters we get to know in these hmm. books, it's going to be hard to keep track of names, but we can try. Um, oh, come on. It isn't. This isn't going to be a Russian novel. No, no, it's true. It's not a Russian <laughs> novel. It's also not 1984. <laughs> where we only had like a handful of names that we need to remember. Well, well, no, see, we just it, need to remember Big Brother. That's all you have to remember. Well, thinking back to how often I laughed during our Big Brother reading, which, which was different because I was reading then. So I, I yeah. think being listening to you and following as I'm reading the book, I, I had more opportunity to react yeah. to the book. But Mostly my laughter in that previous book was um, kind of, kind of, no, no, kind of a, a sarcastic, oh, don't you think things are going to end up well? Yeah. And laughing at your reaction yeah. to, to, to how, how uh, disastrous yeah, so <laughs> things then... were getting. And, and I guess there's a bit of coping in that where. Yeah, we use gallows humor. That's a human thing. Yeah. We use gallows humor a lot of the time to deal with traumatic events well this one but this is this, this already i'm laughing because it's more it, yeah it's more human more life affirming. it's wholesome yeah. like you, you're going okay there are some slightly less wholesome ideas that are that are raised but they're 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 almost like they're prejudices that are inherent in the society that this is set in mm -hmm. and there's a difference between um you know something that is looking at the future and going ha ah, the future is all doom and gloom although 1984 is not the future for us but it was meant to be it's the, the present okay. yes. wah, wah. <laughs> yeah well so that was written in a way to be the future from the past and now we're looking at this one which is looking the past it's set in the mm. past that it's not saying it's the future it is literally the past um so for us we can go back and go well yeah and what forms of attitudes have persisted what kind of prejudices and biases still remain? Well, and it's well, also yeah. because I think I used the term before closed loop, the closed system. They're in a small town on an island or peninsula, it looked like. Yeah. But, you know, they're, they're cut off. 
and it's 1908 so you know to actually travel anywhere you got a yeah horse-drawn carriage yeah, unless you can get to a train but even a train's going to take a while yeah it um, thinks well the fact that they said she sent her off for a few days ago has sent off for someone like so you know it, it's that idea where um there's there's that uh, discussion about in modern society people who live in cities hold less prejudice because you see people from different walks of life all the time mm -hmm. whereas yeah if you still live in a more rural area um it might be very uh, it might be hardly any time at all that that someone comes who looks different than you mm. and you know it's that whole thing with uh familiarity if if you if you've never met someone of a different skin color and suddenly you see one, that's going to be quite shocking. Yeah, well, for someone, if they've never, or they don't know of the existence, like they've never seen and then... Or if, if like, they watch TV and listen to the radio and they've all they hear is how bad these people are and then they finally meet one, those prejudices are going to... Now, in this, in this book, uh, maybe they have access to radio, but that would be it. I'm trying to think if they would. I don't think they do. So so it's, it's it's basically based on like their prejudices are uh, what we've heard or maybe we've seen someone once or we know someone who's seen someone once. Yeah, it's all word of mouth and it's all mm, not very informed. Um, so there are ways to find out where Avonlea is likely to be located if, if it was a thing, which it isn't. It's a made up town. Sorry, I, I said that wrong. No. I'm sorry. Um, but we're talking a kind of um, because they describe a couple of neighboring towns, mm -hmm. like one of which was White Sands. It's not White Sands for the thing, um, but there's things like Park Corner and Cavendish and um, oh, what I maybe it's in older English novels, but I've heard the name Cavendish a lot, and I've always liked it. It's a good. It's a nice name. It's got a nice name too. I think it's a bit um, so. If if you were looking at a place, you'd be talking um, like one of the. So if you look on the north north side of the island, if anyone gets a picture of it, on the northern side of the island, there's a lot of little jutting peninsulas off the island, like that, hmm. um, which you can't see. Rue's got Google Maps. So. I've got Google Maps out. So I'm looking at things like Park Corner, um, Cavendish, North Rustico. Uh, Brackley Beach. So basically, there's these little tiny jutting out peninsulas as they describe mm. um, where Avonlea is located. So that's the idea of it's not only is it on a small, tiny province, it's also a tiny corner of a tiny province that's isolated by a single hill. As as um, Mrs. Rachel Lind has indicated, nothing like as we had in that description of Mrs. Rachel Lind, there's this one hill and everyone who wants to get in or out of the town has to go over that hill, has to go over that pathway. So it is not only isolated, it is super isolated, mm. which is going to be interesting to see a setting of we're bringing in someone. Mrs. Rachel Lynn is running around now town telling everyone how, oh my gosh. The orphans are coming. The orphans are coming. Yeah, this, this shock of they don't, they don't know who they are. They don't know who the parents are. They don't know what's going to happen. And I've heard all these bad stories about orphanage. and blah, blah, blah. You know, you know the, the story she was talking about with the strychnine in the well or the burning down the house. I'm like, this is like, you know, 
when <laughs> when you watch the evening news and your gangs have initiations by drive-by, so you gotta be careful. You never know what's going to happen. Yeah, oh, it's very much that scaremongering, and and the reason it's scaremongering is because they only hold on to the bad stories because they have uh, longevity, as opposed. And this is a brain. Pain. Yeah, did you hear? Yes, their shock value. Um, whereas we rarely hold on to the goods. It's, it's, a, it's the same way. It's just a way, I mean, we can go into the science of that at some stage. Well, but... you know, like in my uh, experience with customer service, I've probably had thousands of positive yeah. interactions with people. I still remember the handful of negative ones. Yeah, and that's the thing. Or the thing is, if someone talking to you and is giving you 500 compliments, and then they say one thing that mm -hmm. your brain decides is not just a criticism, it's basically eradicating your existence as having any form of value, you're not going to remember those 500 compliments. You're going to yep. remember that one thing, that one thing that your brain has decided to interpret extra bad. And, and this is why it's imperative, even with the anonymity, even with it being the internet, it's imperative that you be nice to everybody because, yes, pe people who um, who become famous on the internet, they learn to deal with the onslaught Most of people... negative comments. But to say that it doesn't affect them, that's not right. Well, they they yeah. they've they've worked out coping mechanisms so they don't waste all their time living in despair. But yeah. every negative comment hurts. Well, there's that. I, I don't think the word. Like, I don't like the word nice. That's, you know me. I'm, I'm funny with bad, with bad words. Respectful? I think, no, it's more, it's take an opportunity to have compassion. Sometimes, so this is something I will do. I will type it out if I'm really annoyed with something that someone said, particularly, or I feel that they're completely barking up the wrong tree or they're, you mm -hmm. know, really clashing ideologies. I think the word is if you have a complete clashing ideology with someone, I will type it out. I will look at it, I'll look at what they've said, and I'll think, are they going to, how is this going to be perceived? Could this possibly be constructive? Is this going to have an effect? Is this a waste of my time and energy? Yeah. And then I'll delete it. Because most of the 99 time... 99.9% .9 of the time, it, yes, this 90, is a waste of my time and energy. 99% of the time, it's not helpful, it's not constructive. You know, the, there's that thing that they do in school, which is the think thing, like, is it truthful? Is it helpful? Is it... Um, I can't remember what the I stands for. <laughs> is it, um, again, so, so the, all these different things of like... Intelligent? It, I don't think it's intelligent. I'd have to look it up. But the idea of these, there's an acronym to help mm -hmm. you kind of decide, am I, is this helpful? Is yeah. this in any way going to be helpful? Is um, And so sometimes I'll interact and then some other times I'll just kind of go, stop. You've typed it out. Think before you hit that send button because there's... Mm. Someone will see it and it could harm them or someone could see it and it could be encouraging. But sometimes, most of the time, if it's a response to someone else's critical attitude, it's not going to, yeah, it's not going to be helpful. Uh, other times I'll go and I'll find a resource, like a resource. If someone is saying something that is completely um, or subtly incorrect and it's perpetuating a myth, and mm. I particularly do this within um, my field of science or health, I'll go, okay, so um, I appreciate your perspective. However, you may want to review it after checking out these resources. And I'll pop up the resources and I'll go, look, I respect that you, that's how you've interpreted it kind of thing. Because people will read things and get a completely different message as well. Yeah. Well, especially, I guess, with the idea of um, 
you have something wrong with you and you look it up on the internet, you can get oh, a million. Uh, so many competing. Well, you, you know, the whole idea of, we talked about it at the beginning of this podcast, the idea of positivity. There is such thing as toxic positivity. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, the positivity. You can have a positive mindset. Denial. But when you get to the point where you are deluding yourself, that is probably not healthy. Um, you can be positive all you want, but that migraine is not going to disappear. A positive mindset will help you cope with the pain, but it's not going to get rid of the migraine. You need to treat that. You know what I just um, was reminded of saying denial. There's a great Cavern Hobbs strip where it starts off with like, you know, uh, dinosaurs and, mm. and then suddenly like a T-Rex uh, foot slams down and it's Calvin's teacher. He's been daydreaming in class and Calvin. We're studying geography. What state do you live in? Denial. And then the teacher's like, I can't argue with that. And then the next <laughs> panel's back to the dinosaurs. <laughs> no, yeah, you can't, you can't, like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to forcibly make someone drag them out of their denial, but I will say, look, it's great you have a positive attitude. Um, just remember, you can't tell another person how to live a positive attitude. You don't know what that looks like for another person. Yeah. By someone being realistic about their health, their coping strategies, and um, you know, trying to have maintain a, I am, I am positive that there are currently no practical treatments for this particular symptom. However, I have confidence that eventually there will be. In the meantime, these are the stopgap measures that I have. That is positive. You're still positive. You're like, you're not giving up all hope and going, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're actually going, okay. By saying that there are no practical treatments, that's not not being positive. It's just stating a fact. By saying a condition affects you, it's again, not being not positive. It's not, not being positive. It sounds weird. It's a double negative. It's a double negative. <laughs> you are not being negative, so to speak. You are being positive because you are recognizing and you are adjusting and accommodating as much as you can in your life to that okay you know it's, yeah. it's one of those things um and i think that that's the good thing about this particular book it's positive but it's also makes you think about how that would be like to live in that very isolated insular living thing and you are an outsider and how that works mm. not only are you an outsider you're not just a family that have moved in you are coming in with a whole pile of stigma attached to you. Yep. And I think a lot of us can relate to that. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, so Rue, would you like to uh, wrap up? Yes. So you can find me on Twitter at Rue McMoo. That's R-O-O-M-C-M-O-O. And I'm at Dave underscore the underscore turnip, which I was um, laughing a lot with all the talk about selling turnip seeds. <laughs> Where can we find our blog? Uh, you you can find both our Facebook and Twitter page for the podcast at SMBSLT Podcast. The music at the top of the podcast is by Hey Good Hardy, and it's called Anne of Green Gables Avonlea. And the bottom of the podcast is, well, I Am the Slime by Frank Zappa. And how appropriate that the music we've come up with is The Name of the Stone. <laughs> yeah, we did, a, we did a theme search, and most of the themes are gentle and quiet. Maybe a little too low key for an intro, but we like this. Yeah, and we hope you do too. Yeah, it's kind of a delicate tap. It's like the brook when it's next to Mrs. Re- uh, Mrs. Rachel Lynn's um, house. Yes. So uh, until next time, uh, I, well, I hope you all enjoyed this as much as I did. I'm definitely looking forward to more of the book. Yep, and enjoy. If you'd like to keep listening into this particular podcast on Anne of Green Gables, 
feel free. If you'd like to skip ahead to the next book, just be patient and come back. You'll be waiting a while, but we will get there eventually. We'll get there. It's all good. Um, and that's it. Thanks. Bye, everyone. Thank you.